Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Bobby M Derby was settled in Munich as Italy booked their place at Wembley in the semi-finals. Switzerland's summer, or summer, is over after their eventual elimination at the hands of Spanish penalties. I am Jake from What If Football. This is the Euro Daily Podcast episode 27. Available, as ever, on Apple, Acast, Spotify and Amazon, any good podcast platform, where after the year, as we'll deliver three days a week, content, some new series, some series coming over from YouTube, and of course, the Notice Nostalgia podcast, which you all should know by now. We're also on Patreon, that is patreon.com forward slash what if football every day, until the July the 12th on the Euro Daily podcast, and after the championship, seven days a week, content, that being contemporary football podcast and a couple of nostalgic football podcasts as well as well as video game content fifa football manager etc etc all for the price of a fresh warm pint here in, in yorkshire that being three pounds a month all of that would be uh, extremely grateful if you would uh, be able to do that for me if you are enjoying the content of course but for now let's get stuck in to the games in st petersburg but first Munich. Belgium won Italy 2. And the big team news coming out of the game was that somehow, someway, Kevin De Bruyne made the starting 11 for Belgium despite suffering what I thought was ankle ligament damage. I thought there was more than a whiff of uh, Harry Maguire's injury towards the end of the club season for Manchester United about it, which obviously kept him out for 6-7 weeks. No such thing here as uh, De Bruyne started and to be fair looked fairly comfortable. Meanwhile, Eden Hazard didn't make it, of course, being a muscle injury in Eden Hazard's injury history. He was never going to make it, really, with the exciting, young, precocious 19-year-old in Jeremy Doku starting on the left wing. Chiellini returned from uh, injury for Italy. Meanwhile, Federico Chiesa was uh, brought in ahead of Domenico Berardi on the wing and was effectual, as always. Part of that Italy front three, and were Italy good going forward? Yeah, it was safe to say they were, but uh, to begin with, Belgium looked fairly at ease on the ball compared to Italy. It didn't, it, uh, Italy didn't 
test them too much. And when they did get into the final third, when they got into their half, it was very... Um, they looked cagey, they looked fairly nervous on this uh, quarter-final stage. Big stadium as well. Uh, Belgium hadn't scored a goal in tournament football since 1954 against Italy. So the, the Omens were there. They'd drawn one and lost three, of course, the most recent one being at the last Euros, which was 2-0 to Italy. A very different Italy team there under Antonio Conte. Italy looked to have scored from a set piece and that, that was really the uh, blue touch paper being lit for me in terms of Italy going forward. Looked to have scored and Di Lorenzo seems to get a needless touch on the ball with his knee and it was so frustrating from an Italy point of view and from a neutral point of view because you want the game to have loads of goals, of course. Di Lorenzo touches it with his knee. Bonucci stomachs it into the uh, bottom corner of the goal in Munich. A scruffy goal, but he's, this is tournament football goals. He was marginally offside and... Uh, it was more than a warning sign for uh, Belgium, especially from a set piece as well. And it was a fairly, fairly would have been a very soft goal for Belgium to concede. And as soon as that set piece, sort of warning sign, Belgium sort of dropped a bit, a little bit deeper. They weren't going forward with the same regularity. Italy were a lot more comfortable. They seemed to gain confidence from that uh, disallowed goal. And then we have Federico Chiesa. He's running. Um, it was causing a lot of problems for Belgium down that right-hand side. The game was opening up massively. It's almost like the uh, disallowed goal sent a uh, sent an electric shock through both both teams, and uh, we got a fantastic game of end-to-end football from I think it would have been minute ten to about minute forty-five at least um, in the first half, anyway. And that type of game for me, it's something that Belgium didn't suit. It shouldn't have. Um, they shouldn't have been dragged into that. It suited like the talents of De Bruyne, Hazard, Doku. Doku especially, you know, he's fantastic on transitions. And Lukaku, of course, up top. But in terms of the Belgian defence, they don't want to get caught too high. Their defensive three had a combined age of 101. Um, one of those being uh, Thomas Vermaelen, who's now playing in Japan. So you don't, you don't want um, the Italian team, the high-energy Italian team, to be running at that defence, really. And for me, when they played Portugal and they grabbed that goal and sat deep, that was a better method. If you are going to play the three defenders who all add up to 101 years of age um, with uh, flagging legs, let's say, uh, you want a game plan that is pragmatic in spite of the huge talents going forward. Obviously, Belgium tend to play with more attacking left wing-back and a slightly less attacking right wing-back in Thomas Mounier. Um, and I thought if they played with four defensively-minded players, with um, Axel Witzel sitting in behind as well, so maybe five, and then the other five can attack, that would be would have been uh, the way to go about it. But they were being stretched. They were poor, defending high balls, and the high line should not have been in play against um, this Italian team. And then we had the error, the first goal. This is where they were... There were four Belgian defenders around Immobile. Immobile takes that knock, obviously. We've all seen it on social media now where he's, he's so injured that he's writhing around in the penalty area. And then when the goal goes in, <laughs> miracles in Munich and he springs to his feet, celebrates with the rest of the lads. But the the thing here was, one, the Belgian defence was so lax in dealing with the, what was essentially a bouncing ball. Immobile was on the floor and they were, they were all stood around it almost as if they were waiting for the teammate to sort it out and obviously the ball comes out to Nicolo Barella. 
the composure he showed was just out of this world. He goes past a couple of players, picks his spot, rattles it into the corner of the net, in off the post, and that is exactly why I had him in my fantasy team and checking back this morning, realised that I'd had Berardi, not Barella. A school by error. Um, Barella's been one of my favourite midfielders to watch this this past season gone by with Inter Milan. I think he's one of the best midfielders, one of the best eights in uh, world football at the minute. And he's definitely going to ascend to even greater heights, I do believe. Belgium, they had simply no answer to the high Italian press. The goal obviously gave Italy even more confidence. Federico Chiesa flashed one beyond the post. You've got Spinazzola playing extremely high as we all have come to love over the past three weeks haven't we and um, it knocked Belgium completely off their guard they weren't forcing errors off the Italian defence anymore they weren't utilising the what Martin Kuhn continuously kept calling pace and power from Jeremy Doku which winds me up um, they weren't using uh, Jeremy Doku on the on the uh, left channel they weren't using Romelu Lukaku on the right Kevin De Bruyne was wasn't um, as instrumental. He was still obviously fantastic. Um, one of Belgium's better players on the evening, but he wasn't sort of picking up the ball. He wasn't receiving it in the better areas um, as he often does, you know, drifting in centrally off that right. More to create a midfield three against Italy's. And it just wasn't there. And um, the second goal came, didn't it? Yuri Tielemans was so limp in the tackle for the second goal. It, he tinned out of it completely. Um, and then, of course, the defence sits off. And when, when Lorenzo Insigne's got the ball about 30 yards out and he's on the left channel, we all know what he's going to do. He'll know exactly what he's going to do. He gets the ball, puts it onto his right foot, and then from then on in, you know exactly where it's going to go. It's going to go in that far corner. And the defence just sat off. And I know it happened in a split second, but... Jeez, come on, it's like Yamalenko's goal against the Netherlands. We all knew he was going to do that because that's it, pretty much both of these players, Yamalenko and Insignia, both carbon copies of what I and Robin used to do all them years ago, cutting, score, and Insignia scores here with an absolutely superb finish. And I know I've lamented him a couple of times on this podcast, but wow. It's only because I know how talented he is and how he is this R1 finish as they call it in the uh, FIFA terminology it was just it was like watching a game of FIFA that 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 one goal there it was just superb and it was like what it reminded me of not to uh, drag Insigne down was when um, Ashley Young scored a goal against Arsenal and as soon as it left his boot he knew it were in and he were off celebrating before it hit the net and I think Insigne could have done something here likewise beating Thibaut Courtois from that distance all ends up and it was just superb one of my favourite goals I've seen in this tournament, he was just so aesthetically pleasing. It was fantastic. And of course, he comes, he's able to come into this uh, drift in and cut inside and do these things that he does that we all love. And um, it frustrates me at times, but, you know, he's, he's so incisive when he when he does what he does. And it's uh, amazing how how little defenders pick that up. And he's, it's, it's beautiful to see that. And the reason why he does that is because Spinazzola was... Um, Superb again up the flank, isn't he? He's, there's been some great left backs at this tournament. Um, a lot of the, some of them right footed as well. I mean, he's been at solo. If I was to build a team of the tournament, he'd probably in the, be in the left back position. But that doesn't go. It doesn't sort of analyse the huge depth that we've got at this tournament for left backs. You know, Joachim Myler for Denmark, who's been one of my favourite 
players at this tournament have been absolutely superb. His Atalanta teammate, Robin Gerson's obviously they might have gone out early, but um, Germans, but he's been instrumental as well. Jordi Alba's been fantastic. Luke Shaw as well had a fantastic game against Germany. He's probably rubber stamped his name for the rest of the uh, in the England team sheet for the rest of the tournament. Obviously, Torgan Hazard, I thought, as he had a great tournament as well from that left side, be it left wing or left wing back. I thought he's been fantastic as well. But unfortunately, Spinazzola was struck down. I've written in my notes here that went down with a muscle injury. Of course, we now know um, he's a snapped Achilles tendon, which would explain why he was crying. Um, I immediately thought oh, it was a hamstring injury, so he knows he's out for the rest of the tournament. That's why he's crying. Just the emotion of it. Now we know it's probably more a mix of emotion and severe pain that he was going through. And um, I feel bad for him because he's probably been Italy's if not one of their best players then it's more one of their more important players at least and he makes this Italian system this 4-3-3 which um, is narrow on the left hand side in terms of the attackers and then obviously he brings great width on that left and in times in this game he was playing he was almost playing as a left winger and I noticed a couple of times that Lorenzo Insignia was almost dropping to a left wing back role and uh, he was the highest player on the pitch sometimes for Italy and uh, he provides that width, obviously, because Insignia cuts in and does his stuff. And um, he his uh, replacement now is Emerson Palmieri, he's probably around fourth or fifth choice at Chelsea now. Obviously, he's not as good and probably won't get as... not as, not as aggressive in his... Um, positioning high up the pitch but uh, I don't think it's going to impact Italy too badly and I think could be a blessing in disguise in terms of their defensive shape when it gets to the semi-final the final if they get there obviously they've got to play a very good team in the semi-finals before they can even think about that which is a good note to think about for English supporters at this stage of the game and uh could be a blessing in disguise in terms of they'll have to be more defensive, they'll have to uh, sit off a little bit and spin out solo. He's only a left-back by name, really, on the team sheet at times. And I think that could could help them in the long run, but obviously he's, he's going to be a bit of a miss there. Uh, did Belgium at least trouble Italy? Um, a little bit, in the first half especially. In the second half, no, a little, not so much, really. They had... They had ideas of chances not really chances in the second half but first half they were probably a little bit better um, and if they were worries about Kevin De Bruyne completely unfounded he looked very sharp produced a great save early on from uh, Gigi Odonnarumma um, putting in some wicked crosses as well obviously his, uh, his influence waned a little bit in the uh, in towards the end of the first half but uh, he would kick start a breathtaking counter with a superb turn that took about three Italian players out of the game and I thought, oh, this is going to be one of the great goals. Gifted it to Lukaku in the right-hand channel. He cuts in, does a few step-overs, curls it. It doesn't get enough power. Doesn't have just His placement's just slightly off and obviously Donnarumma was equal to it. Um, Lukaku was fantastic in the channels early on as well. He loves that right-hand channel where, of course, Thomas Mounier is on the right wing-back role, so he's not going to bomb on as much because he's more defensive of the wing-backs. And obviously you've got De Bruyne, he's right wing yeah, on the team sheet, but he's going to drift into central areas and drop a little bit deeper. And obviously Yukaku, Lukaku here on the, on the wing, really, essentially on the channels, provides Belgium with a good out ball and it's worked quite well all tournament. Obviously they couldn't get it over the line here, but I still think he was fantastic. And alongside Yaramchuk, my boy, he was um, 
Lukaku was one of my golden boot picks and of course he only managed to get four at the tournament so that is his over unless uh, one of Cristiano Ronaldo's goals unfathomably gets stripped away from him <laughs> which I can't see happening really Jeremy Doku uh, I say Keon insisted on using pace and power but I, I think he's he chooses his runs very well we all know he's fast yeah that's you know Stevie Wonder could see that he chooses his runs so well, though. He's very intelligent in picking when to sprint beyond a player. And he burst past Di Lorenzo for the penalty with consummate ease. And a lot of people have been saying it was a soft penalty, but he might, yeah, he might not have been taken out. Like, But you can see the force of which Di Lorenzo sort of eases him off the ball. And when, he's, when a player's going that fast, you only need to be eased off it, especially with his forearm and his elbow like he did to go flying and he's not like he's dived for it he's just because he's so fast and that little wobble is going to take him off his feet and it is a penalty for me easily a penalty and I just don't I don't understand where the opposition for that comes from obviously it made the game a lot more exciting as well going into the second half because for me it was probably undeserved the Belgium did have a couple of chances there but Italy were by far the better team in the first half and Lukaku converted the penalty goal number four and Doku grew, it grew into the contest by the second half, he was by far Belgium's best player. Um, he was a danger. He could find a pass as well. He fed Kevin De Bruyne on that left channel to Romelu Lukaku. And it was so close, Lukaku, to goal five. And he, 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 sort of, he got cleared off the line. And um, he couldn't quite get his feet into position for the rebound. And he was, he was just ever so slightly off. It was like, it reminded me of um, England's deliveries from wide against Germany. They were ever so slightly off by inches, millimetres sometimes from the perfect cross. Lukaku was here as well, inches away from that perfect connection for the rebound to tuck it in. Another chance went by as well as he was just inches away from heading it in and that would have been a show goal. So if it was slightly off, these are those fine margins of international football. If those two chances, he was slightly, his positioning was like inches to one side, it would have been 3-2 and would have been talking about a Belgium team in the semi-final, not Italian team. And of course, Jeremy Doku almost scores one of the goals of the tournament beats four or five men, blazes it, and it just goes over the bar and fine margins again. And Belgium did create chances in the second half, but um, but probably on the face of it, Italy probably did a fantastic enough job defensively. Chiellini and Bonucci were just loving every tackle, weren't they? And uh, Donnarumma, when he was celebrating the goal kicks, etc., they just live for this sort of thing. They did have chances in Italy. As the tournament gone on, they've been giving up better quality chances, as you'd expect getting into the knockout stages, the latter stages of a tournament. Obviously, with Spain's possession that we're going to face in the semi-final, that is a very exciting proposition, really, because it, Italy, the shoe will be on the other foot. Will they be able to uh, take possession out of uh, Spanish hands? Will they sit deep? Will they, so many, so many uh, variables to think of for Tuesday, which um, is going to make it one of the more tantalising prospects of the tournament, really. Clearly, obviously, Italy have, if not the best defence, one of the best defences left in the tournament, you'd have to say only now. Um, England have probably only got the better uh, uh, defence on a par, perhaps even Denmark, really. Now they've um, they've clicked into a completely different gear, haven't they, really? And in terms of games of the tournament, go this unlike others, I think, obviously, we've had extremely exciting games of football, haven't we? Um, but this had the quality of a club game for me. This reminded me, I tweeted out at the time, this reminded me of a Champions League sort of quarter-final, semi-final, where 
I remember seems to remember like PSG buying the quality on show there was just incredible last season. Obviously, we've seen it time and time again in the last stages as uh, European football's got a lot bit more exciting. Might be uh, taking the edge off with the away goals rule being uh, snubbed out, but uh, of course, it, it, it didn't touch the drama of the Magic Monday matches. You know, Spain, Croatia five three, France, Switzerland three three, but those matches for me were car crashes rather than two teams filled with quality. This was just undiluted, you know, two fantastic teams with fantastic players just smashing each other. Magic Monday matches for me were classic international matches. You know, see the, uh, the 1970 semi-final between Italy and West Germany, the 1982 World Cup semi-final yet between West Germany and France. Those were international matches, car crashes, like six, seven goal thrillers rather than quality on show for me, really, anyway. In terms of better tournament, better best games of the tournament, I'd probably say from an English bias standpoint, England 2, German, England 2, Germany 0. Uh, but aside from that, obviously, you got the Magic Monday. you got Group F's conclusion, which was fantastic. Uh, Portugal 2, Germany 4. Group F in general was just fantastic, wasn't it, really? And um, a few other highlights. I've got Denmark 4, Russia 1, for obviously the Group B permutations and the whole emotion around it. And in terms of moments of the tournament, Christiansen's goal still hasn't been beaten. For me, that was just something else, wasn't it? Um, Netherlands and Ukraine for up a good 3-2. Sweden and Poland did as well. And uh, they were all entertaining matches in one way or another. And I think Belgium and Italy is definitely in the upper echelons for this tournament. And for me, the tournament... We'll probably discuss this the further we go and get a better handle on the, um, the quality of the latter stages games. Probably up there with 2000 and 2008. From living memory in terms of me anyway, I know 1976 and 1984 were good tournaments. Um, looking back at the highlights and looking back at the goal scoring is probably up there, isn't it, really, with them in the top five. After this short break, we've got a 2021 trivial teaser and of course Spain versus Switzerland after that. I'm previewing the huge quarterfinals in today's matches. Welcome back to the Trivial Teaser. Well done to the following who got yesterday's answer correct, that being Jake, Dean and George. The lowest turnout yet, which hopefully that means not a drop in listenership, but the fact that I made the teaser quite hard yesterday. <laughs> so today I am a forward I've been managed by Diego Simeone and Ronald Koeman. Some of my teammates have been Luis Suarez, Harris Seferovic, Carlos Vela, Fernando Torres and Lionel Messi. Again, for those in the back, I am a forward. I've been managed by Diego Simeone, Ronald Koeman. Some of my teammates have been Luis Suarez, Harris Seferovic, Carlos Vela, Fernando Torres and Lionel Messi. If you think that you know the answer... Do what Jake, Dean and George did and tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube. The result will, the an announcement of the the teaser will be announced tomorrow on tomorrow's show. Where we will be, of course, covering England versus Ukraine, Denmark versus Czech Republic. But first, we've got to discuss quarterfinal number one in St. Petersburg. And that was, of course, between Switzerland and Spain. And we'll be reviewing that after this short break. Welcome back. So Switzerland won, Spain won, penalty shootout, which of course if you've not if you've not watched the game we won't spoil it just yet. But uh, the team news in, Denis Zakaria was the only change, the enforced change for Switzerland after of course Granit Xhaka's suspension ruled him out of the game. Jordi Albert and Pau Torres were in for Spain as they continue to shuffle about that 
back four, Jordi Alba was given a rest against Croatia, of course. Meanwhile, Pau Torres comes in for the right-footed Eric Garcia. And 65% of you on Twitter, when I polled you all secretly, said it would be an Italy versus Spain semi-final. And was it? How did they go? How did Spain breeze through? Well, Spain, for me, did exactly what you'd expect them to do. It's not my bag, personally. It's a form of veiled defensive football that looks a lot easier on the eye than standing in your box, 10 men behind the ball. But that is how they do it. And it's certainly... At least it's something other than the in-vogue tactics of today's game, which is high press, high energy, Bundesliga football that uh, the likes of Jurgen Klopp, Julian Nagelsmann have uh, popularised in the last sort of half decade, decade and so. And uh, at least it's something different, which um, so it ensures that all the games aren't exactly the same. But of course, obviously... Italy-Belgium followed the uh, in-vogue now, didn't they? And uh, that was exciting enough. This less so, but at least it was tactically a little bit different. And I don't think they did as much of the um, tiki-taka criticisms usually are passing for the sake of it, quote-unquote. And I don't think they did as much of that as um, you'd expect from Spain in terms of carving out chances. And a lot of the chances that they did get were from un-Spain-like conditions, really. Fran Torres offered something a little bit different than, you know, passing sideways, finding the little pockets of space like Pedri does so well, um, and which is why he's pivotal to the Spanish team. Uh, but Fran Torres, I think he offers a directness with running that we we tend not to see from this Spain side, probably outside of Jordi Alba, which is why I'd like to see him more than uh, more than a couple of players. Obviously, Gerard Moreno adds a little bit more. He's more of a, a inside forward tucking into a two with Morata, isn't he? And uh, he didn't start. Pablo Sarabia is, of course, another pacey little forward who's um, I've been quite impressed by as well this tournament. And the first goal, it was, of course, so un-Spain-like. It was the third own goal that has been scored for Spain in this tournament, which means it is Spain's top goal scorer. This time it was Denis Zakaria. And um, Alba's speculative volley uh, deflected him by Zakaria. Was, it was going in, but... Uh, it changed wildly off course to go into the net, didn't it? So it probably should be an own goal, that really. And um, it was unfortunate for me because I've got Alba in my fantasy team, which uh, went down as an assist, not a goal, but uh, that is the least of my problems in my fantasy team at the minute. And um, yeah, Spain was creating some good chances, uh, but by... By things like a speculative shot from distance, that's not the Spain way, is it, that we all know and love. Um, Murata, I thought, had another good game. He went off really early, which surprised me. He went off still with the game 1-0. I think it was around 52 minutes, 55-minute mark. Um, I can see why he gets picked. Obviously, he might not... A bit like Harry Kane, what he's doing at the minute, although Harry Kane's not been afforded as many chances as Murata, admittedly. Um, Murata does get into channels. He provides... He does what Lukaku does in terms of his um, assisting for others, in terms of getting into the channels, finding space and then laying it off. Obviously, a bit like Lukaku last night, actually wasting a couple of chances, but Murata, for once, wasn't the uh, most wasteful of the Spanish attackers, for which he's been, um, unfortunately, received a, a, a little bit more than criticism. I think when criticism ventures into ventures over the line into abuse, I think that's where you've just got to stop and realise oh, it's actually just 22 people kicking a lump of air around a football pitch. Um, but that is that is it. Um, Jared Marina, 
was uh, far more wasteful than I think Alvaro Morata has ever been in this tournament, really, when he came on. Wasted a glorious um, chance and point-blank miss from a cross where it seemed harder to miss. And then from a long ball, he forced Jan Sommer into a fantastic save. Um, unfortunately for Spain, though, it'll be the story of Eimerick Laporte and Pau Torres' mix-up for the Jordan Shakiri goal. And it, question marks probably will be asked about um, Eimerick Laporte coming into the Spanish team a bit too late to uh, create any sort of uh, understanding relationships with his uh, defensive partners, obviously. He would have trained a lot with Eric Garcia at Man City. Of course, Garcia's gone to Barcelona now, but with Pau Torres in there, two left-footers, which I'd, I think Luis Enrique might revert back to one left and one right for the uh, for the semi-final against Italy, maybe. Um, but regardless, Jan Sommer was the story of this game, really, wasn't he? He was becoming more of a hero as the game progressed for Switzerland. And in quite possibly what was Switzerland's biggest ever game, Perhaps anyway, they have had World Cup quarterfinals in the early days of the World Cup, admittedly, in 1934 against Czechoslovakia. In 1938 against Hungary, both of those teams went to the final, uh, but then again, both of those tournaments were just straight knockout, um, round of 16, quarterfinal, semifinal, etc, etc. Um, so the achievement isn't as big there, really, I don't think, in terms of saying I'm a World Cup quarterfinalist, like Cuba were a World Cup quarterfinalist in the 30s um, and I think that was because of a walkover so in essence uh, so 1954 is what I deem probably Switzerland's only real quote unquote World Cup quarterfinal that was a loss against Austria in 54 uh, so this was a World Cup quarterfinal uh, a quarterfinal rather of an international tournament that had been gleaned from progressing through a group stage and then even a last 16 which they didn't do in 54 of course the big um, battle for me in the early stages was Jordan Shakiri versus Sergio Busquets and Switzerland's press sort of varied wildly. They would find sort of Shakiri in between like the lines between Busquets and the defence, which was uh, no mean feat because Busquets have had a fantastic game. Um, Switzerland, they would try to win the ball high early. Um, at times they'd drop off as well and I thought their press was, it was intelligent in ways. Um, they knew they couldn't just press Spain to death because obviously Spain will just pass it around them and uh, create huge openings against that defensive three that they do have and um, Shakiri was quite wasteful early on you have got uh, Denis Zakaria giving Spain a little bit something else to think of driving forward breaking from that midfield too and I think that too I don't think they missed Xhaka as much as what I was expecting them to because in Zakaria and Froehler you've got two midfielders who will break from the lines and will torment defences in terms of occupying positions that they're not entirely comfortable with sort of in sort of centrally off off um, Shakiri slightly Shakiri might drift out to the wide areas and of course Breland Bowler was there and unfortunately they did lose Breland Bowler very early on they lost his um, his ability to get uh, Switzerland forward on the counter and I don't think Ruben Vargas probably ever ever replicated that and few players probably can I mean maybe Jeremy Doku in the in the uh, following game um, he might have been able to do that of course he's Belgian not Swiss so Switzerland I mean it's probably a criticism that you could level against any Swiss team from sort of any time in history really not good enough going forward and I think it was more the Italy game than more the France and Turkey game and to be fair conversely for Spain in terms of their chances and giving up chances and not being incisive enough it was more Poland and Sweden than 
Croatia and Slovakia, where this god countless goals, obviously 10 goals in the subsequent games, which has never been done before. Closest Switzerland came really was from a bizarre Jordi Alba header where I don't know if he was caught in between two minds of trying to put it behind for a corner and try to give it to the uh, give it to the goal there who nice Simon who's bounced back fantastically from that own goal hasn't he really and um, it sort of nearly snuck in a little bit and uh, from that you know, Switzerland's tails were quite up um, they had a very good uh, sort of ten fifteen minutes here where you thought hold on could actually trouble Spain here. Uh, then Zachariah went within a coat of paint away from uh, grabbing an equaliser. Ruben Vargas and Steven Zuber were combining well, but again, that went wide. Steven Zuber, again, I thought was great for Switzerland. Probably their best player of the tournament. I know Seferovic slagged him off. Um, he's had a good tournament. He's got three goals, you know, to add to his one from four previous tournaments. I thought he's been good, but obviously Steven Zuber, I think, since he's come into the team, after the Italy game, I think he came in to start for the first time against Turkey. I thought he'd been absolutely fantastic. And another left-sided, <laughs> left wing back, left back, whichever one you want to call him, one of the best in the tournament as well. I thought I'd been pleasantly surprised by Steven Zuba. And obviously the strings of chances, it earned Switzerland the equaliser really. Remen Freuler's incessant pressing, you know, he comes from Atalanta. And so that's the game they play. And he was just, he was great at doing that all game. He's incessant pressing, earned the equaliser. And again, it, unfortunately, he got sent off, changed the game completely. And from that, I thought it was a shocking decision for a red card as well. Again, not that podcast, but it popped a pin in the Switzerland and balloon. They were on the up at that point, And I thought they were probably arguably the better team for about 10, 15, 20 minutes there. And it just popped a pin in their balloon. And then it was just simply... Let's play for penalties now for the remaining, what would be now after extra time, 50 minutes. And they changed to a 4-4-1. And ever since it was 10 versus 11, they were getting luckier and luckier in defence. Obviously, it did it did help Switzerland. They had a very wasteful Jared Moreno. And maybe if Morata was on the pitch, I can't believe I'm saying this, that he would have put one of those chances away. And it's just the way it goes sometimes. Obviously, Spain are always going to create chance after chance after chance. And it's just how incisive that forward is and imagine Spain with a, a, a very clinical center for imagine them with a Lewandowski or a Kane it would it would just be a write off this tournament already wouldn't it because they create so many chances that all they need is a center forward that can just convert them obviously Moreno and Morata are good strikers in terms of chance conversion Morata is obviously quite low and Moreno probably needs a bit more experience in international football for me and Switzerland did indeed hold out for a penalty shootout and conveniently against a team that had missed their last five penalties in open play, obviously. That run started against Switzerland when Jan Sommer saved two penalties in one game, so Joe Ramos missing those. And fortunately for Spain, really, in the end, um, Sergio Ramos isn't in the team, of course. Um, and they would miss the first one in the penalty shootout. So you're thinking, oh my God, six penalties missed in a row. Will they ever score a penalty ever again? And of course, they would win out 3-1. Um, collection of penalties there at the end by Switzerland that were pretty shocking. Fabian Scher wasn't as uh, good in his conviction with his penalty. Akanji looked tame in his and Ruben Vargas just got it all wrong, unfortunately, for the young man. It was neither here nor there. We're putting it in the corner and it just went over the bar. And Unai Simon saved two penalties, of course now becomes a hero after the debacle of those own goals in the last 16 against Croatia and probably deserves it after all that. 
Switzerland perhaps deserved more maybe for their stringent defensive display, especially when it was 11 versus 10. And um, Spain were a bit back to the Poland-Sweden times of wastefulness. Now, they go back to Wembley, go or go to Wembley to face Italy for their sternest test yet. And we said it about England in the 2018 World Cup, didn't we? Have they faced a top team yet? Of course, Croatia aren't the team of 2018. I don't know if we can consider them a top team yet. Um, Switzerland are probably skirting around Europe's top 10 as are Croatia, but now Italy, arguably, well, inarguably really, the form team of this championship is a form team in world football, really from an international standpoint. Italy coming off the back of beating world number one, uh, whether that's justified or not for Belgium is another matter altogether. And let's put this omen out before we go to the previews. Spain have never lost a European Championship semi-final. In 1964, they beat Hungary, going on to win the tournament, of course. 1985, they beat Denmark, but would lose the final to France and Michel Platini's team there. And in 2008 and 2012, we all know they won the we won the trophy, but they beat Russia. 3 0 in 2008, beat Portugal on penalties in 2012. So the omens don't look great for Italy. Italy, of course, who have um, faced three finals, won one in 68 and lost two in 2000 and in 2012. Right, let's preview the big game today. Tonight is the return of England and returning to Rome for the first time, I think, since 1997, where a 0-0 draw that is far more celebrated than what it should be earned England qualification to go out in the last 16 of France 98. But that's by the by. England are coming off the back of their first European Championships knockout win in 90 minutes. Meanwhile, Ukraine, they meet a team who had just achieved the same at the first time of asking, really, in a European Championship knockout phase match. Now, Ukraine have oscillated between a in a, between a 3-4-3 and a 4-3-3 and I think probably with the injury of Zubkov they are probably going to stick to a 3-4-3 they looked very good in that midfield against Sweden didn't they um, last time Sidorchuk, Stepanenko, Shaparenko um, it did um, it should that Shevchenko were bold in his team selection in terms of leaving out arguably one of their star men in um, Ruslan Malinovsky but Malinovsky hadn't had a, a great time of it since the uh, since probably the Austria game. I thought it was good in the Austria game in terms of the, the last two games, less so really. Um, sorry, in terms of the Macedonia game rather. Um, he was less so against Austria and then against uh, Sweden when he came on. And I think his, probable, his continued um, involvement from the bench is probably how... Ukraine are going to have to do it and sticking with three at the back it leaves them solid Zabani I think has had a fantastic tournament centre half one of the uh, underrated players at this championship consider he's 18 as well um, you know Matt Vienko is in there Mikalenko Zinchenko playing a left wing back role will suit him as well and of course you just have to gamble on the fitness of a few players because in the end of that Sweden game they were dropping like flies and obviously Going 120 minutes as well won't help their fitness and it will probably be, if Yamalenko doesn't make it, it could be quite an easy decision to slip Malinovsky in there as well in what maybe is a 3-5-2 rather than 3-4-3. But um, the doubtfulness of Bukayo Saka for England might be a bit of a sticking point for England really because I think if you include Saka, um, you can either oscillate between a, a 3-4-3 or a 4-3-3 again like Ukraine have done. 
and Saka would drop in as a right wing back, which could be the which would have been a good method to sort of fluidly change it up as the game's in progression there. Of course there'll be clamour for the four three three again, there'll be of course be clamour for any number of players, Phil Ford and Jack Grealish, etc., as um Jude Bellingham as well, as it's, this is England and there is it's just clamour, isn't it really? And um my boy Roman Yaram truck is on for the golden boot, but I can't see him putting three beyond three beyond this England defence. Um and if he does obviously that's um that's not going to be good for England, is it? Unless they can start, you know, scoring at free will. And of course, they've now got Harry Kane in the goals. And will this Kane goal open up the floodgates, you know, akin to Paolo Rossi in, nine, in eight, 1982 in terms of Roberto Baggio in 1995? I doubt it somehow, because it's just the way England are playing that he would drop deeper. And I think he's better dropping deeper, sacrificing his goals a little bit for the betterment of the team, you know, with Saka and Sterling or any number of wingers that, you know, England possess. Uh, to get them over the line and I think that's the, probably the better way to do it and England just look better playing that way yeah you might f- sacrifice Harry Kane's goals and people who don't watch the game so intently might criticise him for not getting as many goals as the World Cup but as I said before on this show Harry Kane's golden boot from the World Cup was hardly the best golden boot you've ever seen you know two goals from corners two penalties and um, three penalties sorry and that bizarre goal that was should have really gone down to Loftus cheek, but he again, you know, flicked off his heel, didn't it? He knew nothing about it, no skill involved there. But uh, not to knock Harry Kane, I think he's providing. I think he's performed probably better at this tournament, even though yeah, you can say he's only scored one goal compared to six. Um, his goals dried up from the last sixteen onwards, didn't they, in the uh, World Cup there? But maybe this is an inverse here, and we're just going to see floods of goals from the man. But I, I personally, I can't see it because he's. There's no shock to why Raheem Sterling scored eight three quarters of England's goals because Kane's sacrificing himself to drop deeper, feeding Sterling in there. And um, this scene in a microcosm for the Croatia goal, Kane would have been in that position in 2018 to receive the ball from Calvin Phillips. But would Kane have been able to do a mazy run beyond the uh, Croatian defence? I don't think so. So he's pulling off to the right-hand channel for that goal means that Raheem Sterling can do that job and he did it with a plumb against Croatia. Obviously, he's getting into great positions now, Raheem Sterling centrally as well for the goals against Czech Republic and against um, against Germany, of course. And of course, we've seen Carrie Kane do that in the last minutes of the um, of the Germany game. Maybe it will... I, mean, I don't think he's going to get the golden boot by any means. I don't think he's really going to uh, set the world on fire with his goals. I'm happy to be proved wrong, of course, but I think this is more the... Uh, the summer of Raheem Sterling now and Kane sacrificing his goals for Raheem Sterling I think is uh, definitely the way that England if they are to progress if they are to win the tournament um, if they are to get to the final let's not uh, let's not be too bold about this let's be tentative let's not start planning the parades as Roy Keane says um, England have got more than a ch- good chance of getting the final now with the uh, the quarter of the draw as we've seen it and of course Denmark are a very good team. Czech Republic, as we know, are also a very good team. They are the other quarterfinal in this half of the draw. It is a repeat of the 2004 quarterfinal. That quarterfinal, of course, went the way of Czech Republic when Milan Baros, the golden boot winner then, caught a brace in a 3-0 win. Um, Potentially, Patrick Schick could do that, couldn't he? And he'd be the golden boot leader at this stage with six if he is to do that, if that is a replication 
of 2004. There's more than a whiff of 2004 about this tournament already. But I think Switzerland going out last night, probably them occupying the Greece role, maybe, if it's 2004. Um, that's probably put a pin in that. Obviously, England being probably the more seminal host of this tournament, beating England in the final. If Switzerland did that, that would have been made up for all the 2004 Romans, wouldn't it, in one go? But let's drill down into this game. Czech Republic, a... They're, they remind me a little bit of England. They're not thrilling, but they're very organised. Um, admittedly, they did need a red card to open up the Netherlands, but the warning signs were there. Thomas Hollish had a fantastic game there. Double pivot with Thomas Socek is is very key, as is Vladimir Kufal, Sufal out wide on the right-back role, which I don't think he's got as much love as what he probably should have, but he's been fantastic from right-back there for Czech Republic. On the flip side, Denmark have one of the best tournament have one of the best defenses in the tournament. They're one of only three to win each game on expected goals. That might have changed with Italy yesterday, but I doubt it has. Um, uh, Italy and England are the other three there that have won every game on expected goals. They've shown to be quite fluid throughout, and I don't think we can judge them off the, especially off the first game, of course, with what happened to Christian Eriksen with the Finland game. Can't judge them off that. We can't judge them off the Belgium game because emotions took over in that first half, run themselves into the ground to the nod in order to be uh, picked off by Belgium in the second half. What we can judge them on, though, is the cold and calculated way they've gone about in the previous two games. Four goals against Russia, a hapless Russia side, admittedly, and then against a sturdier Welsh team in the last 16, which was absolutely damning. The only thing that might come a cropper with Denmark now is that they... They travelled to Baku for this game. Czech Republic have probably outside of England and maybe Italy have done the least travelling. Um, but now they're both having to do a bit of travelling now, aren't they? Because obviously Czech Republic played their games in uh, in Glasgow and London before the knockout phase. I think to say that Denmark have adapted in adversity is some understatement, really. A 4-2-3-1 at the start of the tournament um, out of necessity became a 3-4-3. Mikkel Damsgaard's been had a fantastic tournament, of course, stepping into the Christian Eriksen role there. And um, 20 minutes into the Welsh game, they, they've proven that they could uh, go again and in game as well with Christiansen, you know, dropping into that midfield to make it 4-3-3. Key players offensively for Denmark will be Joachim Andersen into that left wing-back role. Damsgaard, Mikkel Damsgaard, he likes to drift into that left channel um, to combine with him. And of course, Kasper Dahlberg often occupies those positions as well. Might see Yusuf Poulsen's return, which I don't know what... I think after the goals in Amsterdam for Kasper Dahlberg, that would be that would be probably hard to drop him, harsh to drop him, really, after getting a brace there. And I'll leave you with this stat, or rather opinion, from my Twitter followers. 74% of you think it will be England versus Denmark on Wednesday, but as we all know, from Czech Republic beating the Netherlands, Switzerland beating France, that anything... Nothing is guaranteed in this tournament. And of course, we'll cover it all tomorrow. Saw heads, irrespective of those, we'll be covering that tomorrow. Reviewing Denmark versus Czech Republic. And the big game, Saturday night, England, Ukraine. But until then, see there. It's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.